Welcome to Music History Monday for November 15th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is A Day of First Performances. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We will observe the first performances that occurred on this date and contemplate as well the nature and reality of a first performance in a moment. But first, I know, I know, we collectively wait with breaths baited for today's This Day in Musical Stupid. Sadly, aside from this very post, I have not been able to dig up any particular date-related event that would so qualify. However, I did find a brief but compelling item that qualifies under the heading This Day in Musical Envy. The envy being my own. Here's the item. On November 15, 1956, 65 years ago today, the 21-year-old Elvis Presley, 1935 to 1977, celebrated his newfound success by buying himself a brand new Harley-Davidson motorcycle. He spent the remainder of the day tooling around Memphis on his new bike with a friend nestled on the seat behind him, the then 18-year-old actress Natalie Wood, 1938 to 1981. Okay, people. Let's put ourselves in Elvis Presley's riding boots. Can we imagine being 21 years old, poised at the edge of phenomenal fame and fortune, buying a Harley and driving around town with Natalie Wood's arms around you, her young, nubile body pressed up against your back? Think about it. This day in envy is right. I will now attempt to lower my temperature. First performances. We contemplate the nature of a premiere of a first performance. Having been witness to over 50 premieres of my own, to say nothing of those of my friends and colleagues, I feel this is a subject I can address with some degree of experience. I have never jumped from an airplane. I have never surfaced too rapidly from a deep dive. I have never been pregnant and thus have never experienced morning sickness. I have never seen Steve Bannon naked. Nevertheless, I have experienced the nausea and the Benz-like pain unique to experiencing a premiere of my own work. Yes, I have for decades espoused the placement of a barf bag under the seat of any composer or playwright about to experience the special joys of a premier performance. The older I get, the more I realize that I am no different, better, or worse than the vast majority of human beings going back as far as we please. 
With slight variations, I am convinced that we all feel the same momentary joy and comparatively sustained despair, grief, fleeting happiness, fear, giddiness, anxiety, paranoia, pride, embarrassment, anticipation and disappointment, love and dislike, self-love and self-loathing, etc., etc., blah and blah. If the human condition was a house, I would suggest it would be a broken-down fixer-upper in need of lots of TLC. I've made these blanket statements about what I perceive to be our shared condition in order to support the following observation. I do not believe my physical and emotional reactions to a premiere are particularly different from anyone else's. So here's my personal take on creation, rehearsals, and premieres as they are experienced by composers and playwrights. First, there's the actual writing of the piece. This is the fun part during which you are an audience of one. Yes, while writing, one might occasionally think about the audience, but not a whole lot. It's enough to get your ideas down on paper in a matter satisfactory to yourself. For me, the doubt, the fear, and the loathing begins the moment a piece is no longer mine alone, the moment I turn it over to the performers. My first instinct is to apologize, to refer to myself not as the composer, but rather as the perpetrator in a preemptive, prophylactic attempt to divert criticism by beating them to it. But in fact, I cannot so indulge that instinct, because like a wildebeest on the Serengeti, the moment I show weakness, the predators, meaning the performers, will mark me for destruction. So I must appear to be strong and convinced of the quality of my work. The rehearsal process follows. Most rehearsals go well, but many do not. It takes just one surly, disaffected musician to poison what otherwise must be the positive and collegial spirit of the rehearsals. In my experience, more often than not, if this should occur, the musician in question is a violinist or an oboist. Peaceful or not, rehearsals will often necessitate changes, which is why rehearsals must be considered as being part of the creative process. Speaking of rehearsals, there is a school of thought that says the worse the dress or final rehearsal, the better the premiere. I do not attend this school. In my experience, a crappy dress rehearsal bodes nothing but a crappy premiere. And then, after all of the creative work and preparation, there's the acid test. And the acid in acid test is a live audience. Sitting with the audience while hearing a piece of mine performed for the first time, I hear it as something entirely new because I'm listening to it through the ears of the audience around me. Most of the time, I'm only vaguely nauseous, but if things are not going well on stage, I'm tasted at the back of my throat nauseous. 
I experience an intense desire to flee nauseous. A why in God's name did I ever think I could do this nauseous? What makes a premiere performance so challenging is that no one in the audience has ever heard the piece before. Consequently, no one knows what the thing is actually supposed to sound like. The program notes aside, no one knows what the piece is supposed to mean, and no one yet knows if it's any good. By the very nature of a premiere, the audience has no context for the piece, and so it's up to the performers to sell the darn thing and make it sound as good as it can sound. If the players make a mess of things, the audience doesn't know that. They just assume the piece sucks. So a first performance will often determine whether or not a given work is going to have any legs at all, whether it will be performed again or simply sink into complete oblivion like former on-air personalities at Fox News. A seemingly random thought. I've often wondered why anyone would want to put the words family camping trip and vacation in the same sentence. Just so, I often wonder why any marginally sane person would choose to put the words composer and career in the same sentence. But then, then there are the moments when it's all worth it. When everything does indeed come together, when the performers are happy, and the audience is happy, and the composer is at least satisfied. Oh, don't expect a composer to be happy. What, what is this happy? Rather, for a composer and playwright, these are moments of validation when we feel that we haven't been living a lie, that we do have something to contribute to our community, that we have justified the gift of life and time we've been given. For myself, I wish I could catch these moments in a bottle, but sadly they are gone in a flash and the satisfaction never lasts more than a day or two. I do not believe that Felix Mendelssohn Gustav Holst, Jerome Kern, or Dmitry Shostakovich experienced anything substantially different from what I've just described during the following premieres of their music. On November 15, 1832, 189 years ago today, Felix Mendelssohn's Symphony No. 5, the so-called Reformation, received its premiere at the Sing Academy in Berlin. Mendelssohn, 1809 to 1847, composed the symphony in 1830 when he was just 21 years old. He then revised it, and it was this revised version that received its premiere on November 15, 1832, with Mendelssohn himself conducting. That premiere performance went well enough. And had the symphony been published immediately, as it should have, it would have been numbered as Mendelssohn's Symphony Number no. 2. But true to form, the symphony's greatest critic was Felix Mendelssohn himself. He decided it wasn't worthy of either publication or another performance, later calling it, quote, a piece of juvenilia, unquote.
As a result, it wasn't performed again until 1868, the same year it was finally published, 21 years after Mendelssohn's death, which is why it is numbered as being Mendelssohn's Symphony Number no. 5. For our information, for a detailed examination of Mendelssohn's Symphony Number no. 5, I would direct your attention to my Dr. Bob Prescribes post for September 24th, 2019. On this day in 1920, 101 years ago today, Gustav Holst's epic orchestral work, The Planets, received its first complete performance at a public concert. The concert took place at Queen's Hall in London, where Albert Coates conducted the London Symphony Orchestra. The Planets had previously been performed before a small private audience in September of 1918 and had publicly been played in part in 1919 and early 1920, but it wasn't until this date in 1920 that the concert going public had a chance to hear the work in its entirety. The public loved the planets. We'd think that its composer, Gustav Holst, 1874 to 1934, would have been pleased with the popularity of the planets and the celebrity it brought him. But in fact, the opposite is true. He was a shy, reclusive man who hated the attention and believed that the planets had effectively eclipsed, pun intended, all his other music. His daughter Imogen, herself a professional composer and conductor, wrote this, quote, My father never considered the planets his best work. Its success bewildered him. He wrote, it makes me realize the truth of woe to you when all men speak well of you. He used to say that every artist ought to pray not to be a success. He said, if nobody likes your work, you are in no danger of letting the public make you repeat yourself. But after the planets, he had achieved the position rare for an Englishman of being a really popular composer. It was a position that he would gladly have avoided. When audiences rose to their feet with tumultuous applause, he gazed at them in blank dismay. He dreaded having to go to parties where he was surrounded by gushing admirers. Press photographers found him unhelpful, and he remained tongue-tied when faced with reporters wanting a story for their columns." Unquote. You know, I believe that most composers would give multiple toes for Holst's problem. For lots more on Holst and the planets, I would direct your attention to my Music History Monday post of September 28th, 2020. On November 15th, 1927, 94 years ago today, the Broadway musical Showboat opened for previews at the National Theater in Washington, D.C., with music by Jerome Kern and the book and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II, based on Edna Ferber's 1926 book, Showboat. The musical was nothing short of revolutionary, something that was recognized immediately by audiences and critics. It remains to this day 
one of the greatest and most important works of the American musical theater, and it will be the subject of tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. Finally, on November 15, 1974, 47 years ago today, Dmitry Shostakovich's 15th and final string quartet was given its premiere by the Tanayev String Quartet in Leningrad, today St. Petersburg. At the time the quartet received its premiere, Shostakovich was a physical wreck, and he had just 10 months to live. The litany of his illnesses should leave us all weak in the knees. He had been physically frail and prone to infection for most of his life due to the starvation conditions he faced as a young teenager during the Russian Revolution. His health had significantly begun to give way back in the late 1950s when he was in his 40s. He was eventually diagnosed as having a form of poliomyelitis that affected nerve endings and bones, which made it increasingly difficult for him to play the piano. On May 28, 1966, the not-quite-60-year-old Shostakovich made his last public appearance as a pianist. He was a nervous wreck. According to his friend, the soprano Galina Vishnevskaya, quote, Dmitry Dmitrievich was not only nervous, he was afraid, terrified that his hands would fail him, unquote. As it turned out, Shostakovich's fears were well-founded. The strain proved too much, and later that evening, May 28, 1966, he had a heart attack. It was not severe, but it was, in fact, the beginning of the end. And despite the fact that at 59 years of age he was still a relatively young man, his life was increasingly that of an invalid. In September of 1971, Shostakovich suffered a second heart attack. He was hospitalized for two months. When he was released, he was almost a complete invalid. He was in constant pain, had only limited use of his right hand, and could hardly walk. Referring to his limbs, Shostakovich joked that, quote, I'm 75% of the way there. My legs don't work, and my right hand is damaged. All I need is to hurt my left hand, and 100% of my extremities will be out of order. Yeah, some joke. One year later, in late 1972, Shostakovich was diagnosed as having lung cancer. What a physical mess he was. But Shostakovich's compositional flame continued to burn hot and in the last two and a half years of his life, during which he spent as much time in hospitals as not, he managed to compose his string quartets numbers 14 and 15, his song cycles opus 145 and 146, and his viola sonata opus 147, which he completed just weeks before his death. Shostakovich's 15th string quartet reflects well the mind and spirit of a composer already crossing over. It's a bleak, 
introspective, subdued work that consists of six slow movements played without a break. Cliché though it sounds, it's difficult not to hear the quartet as Shostakovich's own epitaph. Ironically, the rehearsals for the premiere marked another epitaph. Shostakovich composed the piece for the Beethoven Quartet, which had premiered so very many of his quartets. Rehearsals began in September of 1974. Shostakovich told the members of the quartet to play the first movement, quote, so that flies drop dead in midair and the audience start leaving the hall from sheer boredom, unquote. Tragically, it wasn't just flies that dropped dead from the music. Immediately after our rehearsal on October 18th, the cellist Sergei Sharinsky, one of the quartet's last two founding members, himself dropped dead. A grief-stricken Shostakovich asked the Taneyev Quartet to present the premiere, which they did 47 years ago today. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by the Great Courses slash the Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.